Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Ero, and I am your host for episode 33 on August 28, 2020. This podcast is part of the Eero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. With each episode of Air Medical Today, we explore a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The podcast is also indexed on iTunes. For additional information about the guest on the podcast, I also provide background data on the Air Medical Today website. If you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 612-367-6052. Today, I am interviewing Ms. Andrea Robertson, the president and CEO of the STARS Air Medical Program, which serves the Canadian provinces of Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. Before we get to the interview, I want to go over some feedback from previous episodes and provide some general updates. Episode 32 with Maura Hughes from Boston MedFlight was one of the more popular podcasts of late. I believe she must have a big fan club in the Northeast United States. It was really interesting to learn about their program. With the National EMS Memorial Bike Ride virtual ride, taking place the week of September 19th through 25th, 2020, I recommend you listen to episode 31 with Brian Shaw, the president of the organization. Brian provides some history and background for the ride and the importance of recognizing those that were lost in the line of duty or have provided a significant contribution to EMS. This year is the 20th anniversary of the ride. Again, If you have not listened to the interview of Mr. Jonathan Bunt in episode 30, you may want to, as he discusses dealing with the stress of COVID-19. Jonathan shared a wealth of information that I'm sure you will find very useful during these difficult times. It is my pleasure to welcome Andrea Robertson, the president and CEO of STARS, or Shock Trauma Air Rescue Service. I will be talking to Andrea about the history of STARS, their program services, air medical services in Canada, and COVID-19. Andrea has been the president and CEO of STARS since March 2012. She served as the chief operating officer from June 2011. She holds her BSN from the University of Calgary and her Master's in Science of Health Administration from Central Michigan University. She also holds an executive fellowship from Wharton. Before joining STARS, Andrea held the position of Senior Vice President and Chief Nursing Officer of Alberta Health Services. She is a board member of the Calgary Airport Authority and the CNP Railway. In 2014, she was awarded and recognized as one of the top most powerful women in Canada by the Women's Executive Network. Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast, Andrea. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, I I wanted to talk about your background and how you started working with STARS, but before that, let's talk a little bit about the history of STARS. Um, uh, I read some stuff on your website and also um, talked to uh, Greg Powell, who I 
you know, knew over the years uh, from the uh, Ames board. So um, uh, I was real surprised uh, to hear that uh, STARS really sort of started out as Lions Air Ambulance Service in 1985. Did the Lions Club actually put up the initial funding, or how did that all happen? So they provided us a loan of $50,000 and a donation of $50,000. Wow. The loan was later later forgiven, uh, but that's um, what, you know, seed funding that got us, you know, the ability to rent a helicopter and get going. Yeah, that's, uh, I was just, I hadn't heard uh, the Lions Club doing those uh, types of things um, uh, in the past. So that's uh, that's a really uh, neat way to start. And then... How did the the name get changed then? Oh, um, f- from my understanding from Greg and Linda, early days was uh, there was a California uh, shock trauma air rescue um, company. And so we started with Alberta Shock Trauma Air Rescue mm-hmm. Society. It's It's... Now, really, registered name is uh, Shock Trauma Air Rescue Service. And so the um, the acronym has always been the same since day one, actually. Yeah. And so um, just, you know, reflecting the need for the trauma level of service that was required at the time. Right. And so was, was STARS one of the first programs in Canada then? No, no. There was a program in both BC and Ontario at the time. Um, all of the programs in Canada are slightly different in terms of governance and funding. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, we were not the first. Yeah. Um, did uh, you go out and look at those services and then also services in the United States when, when starting STARS? Yeah, I think that Greg and um, others, there were a couple of sort of founding physicians that started uh, the program, mm-hmm. took a look um, all over the place. There's a big relationship with a, a group, in, and um, I know that they were looking in Europe and in the U.S. as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, the uh, on your website, you put the Winter Olympics in 1988 in Calgary was a big milestone. Why was that? Well, it was a it was a couple of things. Um, around the same time, was it a G8 uh, occurred here as well? So two things, you know, for the Olympics, we provided air support out of one of the mountain um, venues. And so that just gave us a lot of press time, I guess. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with G8. So the G8, uh, we were geo-positioned around where the meetings were being held in, in the mountain community. And so just that level of exposure gave us a lot of public awareness, which, of course, helps us raise money. Yeah, excellent. And then uh, I think it was in 1991 you were awarded contracts for both fixed-wing and helicopter services for Edmonton and Calgary. Um, Was there not a provincial contract at the time? No, that was sort of the beginning of how health uh, was awarding contracts. There was the first the first one and so that was the beginning of us eventually having multiple like 10-year contracts with with the government yeah yeah so are the other programs have contracts with their provinces too yes 
Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Canadian healthcare system too. Um, there, in 1996, uh, the Stars Emergency Link Center was created. Uh, why and how was this set up? Well, it was funded by the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, actually. Oh. Uh, very fortunately, got us up and running. But really why was our emissions were becoming much more complex and um, needing to coordinate landing, uh, fire departments, RCMP, so police, and everyone who uh, coordinates in the provision of care of the critically ill and injured. We just needed way more coordination, and that's why the Emergency emergency Link Center, so it's essentially a dispatch center, um, was formed. And now it's um, very busy, has multiple functions, and uh, we couldn't live without it. Yeah. What are some of the other functions? So it's serving more than just oil and gas then? Oh, yeah, for sure. So, well, its primary function is to serve us. So the um, coordination of one patient can uh, translate into 50 people being on a call. And so you think about if you're flying in, we had a recent event in the the mountains here, Columbia Ice Fields. There was a big accident up here. And um, we ended up sending all of our aircraft from three bases in Alberta and coordinated some fixed-wing resources and coordinated with RCMP, Alberta Health Services, fire, parks, um, uh, other rotary wing providers, and we we coordinated all of that out of our emergency link center. So it is really the brain of our operation. And so bringing together multiple resources, all of the uh, receiving hospitals, sending hospitals, all of that, uh, went through our link center. And so all of that coordination around patient care happens there. So that's the primary function. Then secondary, we do have uh, an arm that is uh, revenue generating. And so we do things like work alone monitoring, uh, coordination between uh, various industry sites. So mining, agriculture, oil and gas, highways, uh, all of that uh, we get paid for, and that is a very small sliver of our revenue, but uh, it does help. So give an example of that, of, mm. of what type of coordination that would be. Well, it's anything from I'm working alone, and so my emergency system for my company is that I have to call in every three hours. And if I don't call in, I then our protocol would be we call you. If we can't get a hold of you, then there's an escalation process in that particular company. Okay. So that would be the kind of thing we, we would uh, coordinate. And um, Well, thanks for explaining that. And then going back to your example uh, with the, uh, was it the Columbia Ice? Yeah, Columbia Ice Fields. Field, was, Columbia um, Ice Fields. Yeah, that, yeah, that must have been a a massive coordination of communication. How, how do you do that with so many different agencies? Well, we had uh, the transport physician that was on call in Calgary got the first call, and he coordinated the whole response. So it's, you know, the system works very well um, in all of our provinces because 
it's centralized, right? So there's only one health system. So in, in Alberta, it's Alberta Health Services. In, um, in Manitoba, it's Shared Health. In Saskatchewan, it's, it's Saskatchewan um, Health Region. And mm-hmm. so the, 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 it's just one place. So there's, there's not much to coordinate with, right? Because there's only one center. And then, um, and they run, so the, the always the health system runs the big response. So they set up a command center and we link into it. And I we see. provide the rotary um, critical care response. Response, yeah. So how, how many employees uh, do you have in that center? Or how, how many are on? Yeah, how many are on duty at any given time? So total employees would be about forty, but uh, uh-huh. at any given time there'd be between four and six, depending on the time of day. I see. And are they? Uh, are there uh, clinical? Are there nurses, physicians, or is it uh, dis- emergency dispatch type people? What, what's they're di- the? They're they're trained in dispatch only. And uh-huh. our our decisions, clinical decisions, are made by a physician. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, the only time we do non-physician decisions is in trauma, where we do we have an early automated dispatch process where we're auto-launched in, when we meet certain criteria. Otherwise, there's a physician involved in in decision making as as to whether we go or not. Yep. Well, that's uh, that's, that's very interesting. I know some of the programs and the. United States, uh, especially ones that are affiliated with a, a um, health system, will you know handle the um, you know call center or um, you know coordinate uh, patients coming in uh, with you know with bed control, etc. So yeah. very interesting that uh, you developed that uh, uh, very early. You were also uh, the first program in Canada to have uh, night vision goggles in 2003. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was pretty early for programs, I think, everywhere. Tell us about how that all happened and uh, uh, I, I think one of the biggest safety improvements in, in air medical. Well, it, it was uh, an initiative by a couple of pilots, uh, but the lead guy mm. was a guy named uh, Greg Curtis, still flies for us, uh, was one of the very first pilots ever at STARS. And so um, he just saw that, you know, he's, he's working with a lot of uh, pilots that came from the military that were certified in night uh, vision goggles. And just the number of scene calls in complex missions, we were fl- flying at night and into the mountains. And he just said, you know, it's crazy. This is the obvious thing that we need to do applied for a grant um, with government and then pitched to the, the federal government that they should um, fund this initiative, and they did. And so, you know, good on him, boy, because we were the first civilian organization in Canada to be flying with NVG and, um, and still are today, obviously. But uh, it was his initiative and mm, passion for safety that actually got us to where we are today. Did, and, did, you know, the, to fly for stars, um, we have about 50% of our pilots are um, previously flew for the military. So, you know, it is complex flying. There's no question about it. And so any, any safety tool that we can come up with to make it a little bit safer, um, you know, we're all in. 
Yeah. yeah I, mean, I was just going to ask if Greg had uh, experience in the military, because that's usually where it uh, transfers over. No. Nope. Uh, but... Yes. Yeah. yeah. Not him. Oh, he interesting. Wow. I know, which is, I think, even more, more interesting that he went after that and got it. But anyway, yeah, many, many years later, and we've got lots and lots of experience flying with MBG, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I think there was a survey by Fitch and Associates, and I'm not sure if it was just U.S., but it was like 94 percent of the program. So it, it's something that uh, you know many programs now uh, fly with. So mm-hmm. um, you also, I, I just fascinated by all the things that Stars has done, and another one was the uh, in 2004 starting the Education and Research Center, and um, talk about some of those activities and how that started. Well, it started with, uh, you know, human patient simulator. We were looking for ways to educate our own staff yeah. and, um, you know, practice, practice, practice. And um, that's, how, that's how it was born. And then um, we've got the whole education program now is, is our Advanced Skills Institute, which is in collaboration with one of our universities here. The program, um, we take nurses and medics generally with at least five to ten years of critical care experience, and then we teach them for another 20 weeks. And that, that is in that center. Those little small centers exist in all of our bases. So we have um, a hu- human patient simulator in all of our um, bases. We also have them in a mobile bus where we can take out the, the bus and teach communities um, various treatment protocols around the critically ill and injured. And so we found it unbelievably successful in both outreach as well as the education of our own staff. And of course, that all is led by our physicians as well. Yeah, I, I was, uh, when you were first saying, I was wondering if you were doing outreach. So is the outreach with, uh, like, EMS agencies, fire departments, who, who are you reaching out to? So everything from we go out to do landing zone uh, training and safety mm-hmm. to, um, so fire and RCMP, and, which is our, our um, police force that is in rural and remote areas, and, the, and small health centers. So small hospitals that, you know, haven't seen a stroke patient in, you know, a while or the latest treatment protocols for stroke for, for you know, uh, an MI or trauma. And so um, we get asked to go out and we, we do go out. It's our pleasure to do so because, you know, the better equipped you are rurally, then the more likelihood is that the patient's outcome will be better once we get there, right? Yeah. Yeah. So was the, is that how then uh, the competition was born with, you know, the, the cup, I think, uh, changed mm. the name of the cup. Is, is that, uh, did that all come out of the Educational Research Center then? Sure did, sure did. And yeah, so yeah. AMPC, you know, yep. has a, um, a annual competition for air medical programs. And so what we do internally is we compete in each base and then the winner of the competition at the base goes to the interprovincial competition 
Uh-huh. And then we choose one, um, one team to go to AMTC and compete every year. And every year that we've competed, we've placed in the top three. Yes, I know. You were, I think Stars, I think Stars <laughs> is the leader in that. I know University of Michigan came on pretty strong yeah. too. But uh, I was on the Ames board when we, you know, decided to have that at the AMTC, and I just. It's one of the features I've always really liked watching and have encouraged teams at uh, places that I've worked at too. But Stars was always, you know, one of the one of the the best. And the competition did it first start in Canada or was it? Um, uh, what, did it go right to AMTC? I wasn't sure of that. So you know, I don't know that history honestly. Uh-huh. But the what I will say is it's how we train, and so. Yep. Yep. Um, it, it, it really mimics what our staff go through. And so the, we do scenario planning with them all the time because, you know, the belief is it's no different than in aviation, right? Um, you simulate, simulate, simulate bad outcomes. And so that you've got muscle memory essentially when you're in it. And so, you know, medicine stole a lot of that training and safety basics or tools from aviation and medicine's been doing this for a long time now and the whole thing is is to to work through scenarios and make sure that you get better and better and better at it so at three o'clock in the morning in the back of an aircraft it comes automatically yes right yeah so um it's very natural for our teams, and they they thrive in that environment. Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's wonderful. I know um, with uh, having encouraged teams uh, where I've worked uh, most recently at uh, Lifelink and talking to the folks that did go, and there was an internal competition there too, is how much that helped improve their clinical skills um, by mm-hmm. doing simulation. So that is wonderful. Yeah. So then... Uh, in 2009, the STARS Critical Care Medicine Academy was started. Um, what is that about, and how does that uh, different than the so Education it, Research it, Center? Yeah, it's essentially what I just described. So I just uh, fast-forwarded <laughs> oh, okay. to see what the academy <laughs> is today. So our, our academy... Is something we put our, our people through, but anybody can apply and go through the academy as well. And so it's our, we call it induction or or the critical care academy program. And, and essentially it's that 20-week program that, that you go through. We yeah, also yeah. use the academy for annual, um, you know, recertifications, uh, Refresher, if yeah. you will, that, that kind of thing. So our staff do hundreds of hours of... Um, clinical education units uh, a year to, to remain current. And so, you know, there'll be the airway module and, and so on and so forth. So the, it, it is about always advancing their knowledge and, you know, the maintenance and the advancement of their knowledge. And that's what the academy does. Got you. So it's not, it's more than the, the simulations part of that, but there's other things yeah. uh, that, you know, oh, yeah. um, induction of new employees refresher um uh and that too then is if someone wanted to apply and go through that academy they could that are not part of stars or is that just internal nope they can 
and uh, we charge them, but uh-huh. they they can they can take the program as well. So someone from a program in the United States could say, "I'd like to do that," and they could do it. They could, yeah. Yeah, and how long is the program? Twenty weeks. Twenty weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, well, let's let's uh, switch a little bit here. You um, assumed leadership in the organization um, in in 2012. Um, uh, you had first came on as the um, chief operating officer, um, and uh, that I think that is always a, a planned tra- transition for you to uh, uh, become the CEO. But that was uh, a bit faster than expected with uh, Dr. Powell's medical issues. Um, mm-hmm. uh, talk about that transition and so that started, time. Yeah. So I, you know. Greg is an amazing guy, and uh, I came on in 2011, actually, and just as we were signing contracts in both Saskatchewan and Manitoba to expand into those two provinces, um, and so the thought was, I come on as chief operating officer, get those provinces up and running, and then Greg, you know, slowly teaches me the rest of the gig, and, yeah. and unfortunately, you know, he had some challenges. And so I took over, and it started in June, and I took over as CEO in the fall of that year. Um, and, then, and then, of course, it became permanent when, when it was clear that he wasn't coming back to work. So yeah. um, it was a, I was in the hot seat within four months. So, yes, wow. Uh, it was busy, yeah. And that, busy. That, that had to be a big uh, change for you because, you know, talk about your background i know you uh, have a nursing and healthcare administration background but um mm-hmm. talk about you know in 4 months all of a sudden running one of the largest uh, air medical programs so my background was big healthcare you know so yep. um i ran hospitals and systems and so i was used to things that were far bigger than than what stars was Interesting. But there's a big difference big difference between being in a large um, system versus being in a s- small system where you're totally accountable, right? It's it's completely different. And we were doubling in size and trying to figure it out as we went. And so it was, well, it was thrilling and challenging and scary all at the same time. Yeah. Well, talk about that a little bit. So what... Um, when you say large system, in other words, were there more positions to carry out different things and less in STARS as an organization? For sure. I mean, you know, yeah. I ran two hospitals, which would have been, you know, a billion dollars in in budget and, you know, 25,000 people. So, like, there, so in a system of that size, there's a lot of supports and infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And so for us, it stars, you know, we all roll up our sleeves and do the, do the work, right? It's, yeah. it's, um, and it's very entrepreneurial organization. So, you know, you do things, uh, you're nimble and flexible, um, but you're lean, right? So you do things, and I'm not saying that the health systems are not lean, it's just different. Large, large organizations, any business, has different levels and structure 
in order to allow that system to, to function a- appropriately. Um, in, in something as small as stars, it small number of people do a lot of work. Yeah. I, I uh, have had the same uh, experience with that, having uh, my backgrounds in healthcare administration, working in a large you know, university or um, uh, community health systems. Um, and it is, and, and, it, and I think some people have had a harder time making that transition because they're used to having a lot of different employees. Well, I just sort of direct things. No, you've got to get your hands dirty doing stuff. Yeah. You've got to you've got to be doing some of the work too. So um, sure. there, that's an interesting comment. Um, so you're, uh, you know, you have a clinical background with uh, nursing. Um, how, how has your nursing background assisted you at Stars? And and you know, how have you? you know, picked up the sort of the non-clinical aspects, especially aviation services. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I thought, how comp- how complicated could aviation be really? <laughs> <laughs> Boy, was I wrong. Anyway, the, um, so my, my clinical background is critical care, and so yep. that helped a ton um, because although I'm not clinically competent uh, in critical care at the level that our, our folks are, um, I really understand their world. And so um, that's been hugely beneficial for me. Um, the aviation piece, uh, you know, I remember before I even started, I had um, the head of aviation at the time, I just said to him, send me everything. And all I did was read, 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 read. And I still today probably ask our chief aviation officer three aviation questions a day. Easily. <laughs> And uh, so I think, you know, that is going to be a forever journey. Uh, It's fascinating. It's um, in some ways daunting, but I really uh, respect uh, what they do for us. And uh, and it's a very complex arm of our business, no question about it, and expensive. Holy smokes. Yes. I always thought... You know, medicine was the most expensive thing on the planet, and then then I found aviation. <laughs> yeah. So fifty-four percent of our budget is spent on aviation. Wow. And so, yeah, it just chews chews up our money, but you know, uh, it allows us to do some pretty interesting things. Yeah, it's uh, I, I I think people are always amazed. Uh, you know, when I talk to people, like, well, geez, how much does a helicopter cost? And they are just amazed when you, you know, give the figure, they go, oh, my gosh, you know, that can't yeah, be. Yeah. You know, even some of the, you know, less expensive ones. And, and they, the price just seems to keep going up. I know in my early years starting, it was like for large helicopter, five to six million. Now you're talking 11 to 15 million, depending on, you know, all the stuff that you have on. Yeah. Um, so uh, talk about... Uh, the stars has core values. Uh, talk about those core values and how that is, uh, you know, used with your employees and, and everything that you do. Well, it's an easy thing because um, stars, which stands for shock trauma air rescue uh, service, also is the acronym for our uh, values. So safety, no surprise, right? Yep, um, yep. In everything we do. Um, teamwork because you know it that front and back team has to work in absolute union to get uh, everything done for us accountability um you know this is a huge uh, 
commitment to the citizens that we serve, right? So we take accountability very um, seriously and respect um, because, you know, you got to want to phone us. <laughs> and, and so the respectful collegial um, work that we do with everyone to, to care for one patient is um, foundational and paramount for sure. Yeah. That's internal and, and external. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then spirit. So, uh, <laughs> It is a small group of, and I've got to find a better term than this, of I call them, uh, you know, racehorses because they are, you know, people at the very top of their game um, is, is who works with us. And they're phenomenal. And they just want to, you know, go and do more. And so the spirit, that spirit uh, is incredibly important to us. So yeah. th- those are our values. And and easy to remember because uh, Greg and Linda, those two smart people, uh, put together some really foundational, incredible things that we'll we'll have forever. Yeah, and our name and our values are are a couple of those. That's wonderful. You know, I never, I ha- I have it written out in my notes here, and I never realized that. Uh, you know, because a lot of them are, you know, many programs have safety and accountability and teamwork, et cetera. Um, but I didn't realize that uh, followed the, the STARS acronym. So that, I just mm-hmm. learned something new. Um, and spirit's one that, you know, you usually don't see as a, as a core value. But I, I like what you said about that. So um, talk about uh, the leadership team at uh, at Stars, what are the positions, and um, you know how, who all is in charge of different things? Yeah, you bet. So we've got Chief Medical Officer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for all the obvious reasons, that's what we do, and and so we have lots of chiefs. So Chief Medical Officer, Chief Aviation Officer, mm-hmm. um, for all the obvious reasons, and. Chief Operating Officer, which really is in charge of, you know, the functionality of all of the provincial bases, right? So six bases in total. Um, And then we have Chief Financial Officer and Chief Brand and um, Fundraising uh, person. So those positions in totality, that's it, and me. Yes. So they all report to you then. Um, Mm -hmm. And does the the all the clinical services fall under the CMO then? Between the CMO and the and the chief operating officer, the two of them really run all the clinical services. Got you. And then the COO is the, the functional, you know, yeah, all the nuts and bolts with running each of the the bases. Mm-hmm. Um, and then your I hadn't heard chief brand, uh, so that is the the marketing functions are included with that so marketing and, and communications is uh under the same person that does all of our fundraising so it's it's a yeah. massive role yeah because uh they're responsible for bringing in you know 50 percent of our revenue so the all of that is under one person yep very interesting did was that in place when you came in or is this something that you changed um, I changed it just in terms of uh, the functionality of it. Mm-hmm. We brought uh, the 
the previous person in that role brought those two functions together, really important because our brand honestly is how we raise money. And, um, so it's, it's a perfect um, grouping of functions. I think, uh, we've been pretty successful. And so I think that, uh, well, the role in any other organization would be a CEO. It's a, it's a massive job, mm-hmm. but we've, we've decided, you know, part of our, magic sauce as it were (laughs) is having fundraising and clinical so close because we think that you know having um, a nurse or a paramedic describe what we're doing to a potential donor is you know gold yes and um and so having that all in one place we're small enough we can do it um it you know has been very successful excellent Mm -hmm. so let's um Let's talk about, you have a board of directors. Um, mm-hmm. uh, how often uh, does the board meet? How big is it? Um, and uh, are you an ex-officio member of the board yourself? Are you a voting member? No, I am not. Mm-hmm. So in, in the Canadian system, uh, very common that the CEO is no longer a member of the board, for sure, in terms of uh, both public and private. Um, we just have moved away from that. So mm-hmm. no, I am not a voting member. I uh, am accountable to the board of directors, of course. That's my that's my boss. We have a large board, uh, primarily because we want regional re- representation from all the jurisdictions in which we serve. And so it is a 19 member board today. Wow. And um, and very functional. Like I just when people. Uh, you know, describe boards where, where it's challenging. That That is not my experience. This, our board is primarily business people and they make us better. And like, I just, I'm always astounded how much they help us. So we meet quarterly and then we have the typical board uh, committees and they meet quarterly as well. Uh, we typically will meet for the vast majority of a full day uh, just because of the amount of business that gets done. So it's a pretty mm, typical structure, I'd say. And, um, yeah, we're just, uh, we've been very blessed with unbelievable um, people. So our, um, we currently have, we have a co-chair model. And that, you know, functions for us really well just because of the size of the board and then these are busy business people. And so if they cannot make it, you always have a, a chair as sort of backup. And um, I keep those two individuals very well informed of everything that's going on at, at STARS. Um, and then their volunteer board, they're not paid. Uh, mm-hmm. And they, uh, you know, their contribution is massive. Like I just phoned one of them to help me out with strategy. And he's going to lead the, just a board member, not a, not a chair of um he's going to help me lead the the board strategy sessions and they're just he is you know a ceo of a very large oil and gas company and the fact that he's going to take time out of his schedule to help me with that is i think pretty phenomenal yeah well that that's uh it is a very different model i mean one just that's a a very large board usually say when your board gets that big it's pretty it's hard to to manage and and as a co-chair model is that something that 
is a Canadian thing? I had not heard that before. Is there just something you developed because of how large the board is? We just developed it. Um, okay. It okay. Functionally, just to, to assist us. No, it's not. It's not a common structure at all. Okay. And then, when you say business people, did you go out and look at say that I I need someone from aviation. I need someone. You said oil and gas. Maybe you know, folks that we serve. Uh, uh, HR or marketing or I mean tell us tell us a little bit about the types of individuals that are on the board yeah it's a very typical corporate board structure so mm-hmm. the governance and nominating committee has a skills matrix um, we go after it for me um, you know having people who have been in a CEO seat is always helpful not not for the entire board but um, you know a good handful of um, CEOs is really helpful for me, yes. uh, both from a fundraising, so who's on your board, so name recognition. Um, you know, we have an unbelievable roster of, of board members, frankly. And so that's a piece. And then the usual, so we always have physicians, um, generally mm-hmm. two physicians that sit on the board, uh, and that has also been super helpful in times of... Um, you know, challenge or crisis that they've been, you know, uh, irreplaceable, I guess. Um, aviation is a tough one to get, but we're always looking for um, aviation background. And then just business acumen right across the board. So everything from um, agriculture to oil and gas to the, the typically just the um, businesses uh, that are in the communities in which we serve so that we understand who we're serving. And so it's just about representation of, of the communities in which, we, in which we serve. So we need, you know, representation from the far north in Alberta and, and so on. And so I think it's both regional and skills yes. and senior folks because this is a complex business. Yes. And it's a complex, complex business model. And so to have, you know, um, people with very deep background and deep financial knowledge and business knowledge is, is extraordinarily helpful. So you can, on your, you, you actually have a skills matrix so that you, you do go out and look for, uh, when there is a vacancy, individuals in certain, you know, besides the geographic, uh, in, in certain areas. Um, mm-hmm. that you can have we one of one of our board members is in search works for a search company and um assists us hugely every year when we go through the um when we go through the skills matrix and and for recruiting and helping us come up with names right across the board like it's uh it is a board function that the staff has nothing to do with it yeah so the board choose, chooses who's on the board are there term limits Yes. So um, two, three-year terms. So it gives the board the opportunity to, board member, director, the opportunity to step down after three years or um, or renew for three years. So six years max. Six years max. And then um, your co-chairs, do they have to be on the board for so long before they can become chair? Um, you know what? That is not written in our bylaws, but generally that is the case, yes. Got you. 
I, I think that's a that's a really um, nice structure. I mean, my experience um, with boards, I mean, have had some great uh, board of directors, but they've been more representative, you know, so um, that, that, in other words, there might be, you know, five, ten health systems that, you know, come together to, to form the organization, and then there's a one or two members from each of those organizations, usually administrative or physician. Uh, but what's lacking sometimes is, is that that general skills matrix, you know, that yeah. not every, not everybody's really kind of in the same type of position. So that, that, uh, must really help you quite a bit, uh, to, uh, have that kind of, uh, leeway, uh, to really having, uh, you know, board members can really support you in, in really all aspects of the business. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, so ex- explain, Andrea, the Canadian and uh, how, how the Canadian and provincial health system works. Um, what are the roles of the national government and the provincial government in the delivery of health care, really in general, and then also with air medical transport? So the provision of health care is a function of the provincial government. That it is who is. responsible and accountable to provide care to Mm -hmm. um, the citizens within their province. The mm, structure or mandate of what health is in Canada is a function of the federal government, so the Canadian Health Care Act. So they set, um, you know, national policy and direction. And so that's it. It's it's really as simple as that. So the provincial government's... um, are required to provide the, all of the care, including air medical transport. Mm-hmm. And so if that provincial government decides that they want to have um, air transport, then they acquire it or provide it, period. And how that's done um, varies province to province um, throughout, throughout the country. But uh, so now we are in three provinces, but in other provinces, the provision of of uh, rotary and fixed wing transport for for care varies, but it is it is the role of the provincial government to provide it. So, is it are there some services that are let's say mandated by the healthcare act from the the, the Canadian uh, central government, but is air medical not one of the ones that's necessarily included in that? You know what, it's, um, so it's not part of the Canadian Healthcare Act, really, you know, the act really just says that, you know, there will be publicly funded healthcare for all Canadians. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not that specific. It's up to the health system to determine how to take the limited funds they've got and provide healthcare for all. And so that could include air, air transport, or it could not. Yep. So before we went into um, Saskatchewan and Manitoba, there was fixed-wing transport, but there was no rotary wing um, transport there ever. And so we've only been there nine years. So prior to that, people got transported by, by fixed-wing or by ground. Yes. And so it is really up to the, the local 
provincial government to determine how they're going to provide that care. But would that, would that be true, at, let's say, um, a knee replacement or something? I mean, is it, uh, there's, there's not a, 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 a number of services that the central government says these have to be provided. It's up to nope. the provincial government to do that. So does that vary is, quite but, a bit? But between under the auspices of, of you have to provide equal access to all, right? Yeah. So everybody can get a knee replacement, but you're going to be on a wait list to get it. Yeah. Right? And so, um, so that's, that's, and you don't have to pay for it. So that's the, 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 the overarching policy is, is free and equal access. And then the provincial government is under the mandate to provide it. Yeah. And then I, I, I know I read, uh, there was a, I, I can't remember the exact uh, story, but if someone is out of province and they get services, then that is billed back to the province of where, they're, where they live? Yep, interprovincial, interprovincial um, transfers. So you would bill, British Columbia would bill Alberta for an Alberta patient uh-huh. and be reimbursed for the care that they provided. Got you. Very, very interesting. I know there was some story, I don't know if it was like a year or so ago, about somebody that was transported and uh, one provincial government didn't want to pay. I, I think they finally uh, agreed, but I, I can't remember the exact story. Mm-hmm. So, so STARS uh, has contracts uh, in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. Um, do those have to be renewed? Is there a competitive uh, uh, RFP process? So uh, in some of our provisions, we have the clause in it to renew for five years or 10 years. Mm-hmm. So it, it depends on um, the, the contract. Um, they're different. All three of them are different. We will be competing in an RFP process uh, in Manitoba mm-hmm. in about two years. Mm-hmm. So, so it does vary province to province how we, how we settle those contracts. Yes. Um, and then how, how long have you been in Saskatchewan and Manitoba now? Nine years. Nine years. In both provinces? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I found interesting is there's separate, and you mentioned the separate contracts for fixed wing. Um, has STARS looked at developing their own fixed wing program and competing for these contracts? Because I know you, you know, early on you did offer fixed wing services. Mm-hmm. To date, um, no. We would be only interested in providing critical care transport. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 90%, 90% of fixed wing is um, not critical care. And so uh, we would be, if we were looking at it, we'd be looking at just that small arm of um, transport. And not necessarily the aviation part, but just the medical part, right, of um you know that is our that's our that's our swim lane. It's what we're really good at is critical care. Yes. And so to provide the medical uh, portion of that, getting into fixed wing, if you're going to own the aircraft, and um, <laughs> you know, I we're just trying to pay for the, the helicopters we've got now. <laughs> yes. Um, expanding beyond that is uh, that is a whole big business. Yeah. 
So yeah. does does uh, Star staff sometimes go on a fixed wing flight or even a ground transport if you you know can't go by all the time? All the time. Oh, yeah. you do. Okay. So, yeah, we're platform agnostic, is what we say, and um, uh-huh. we talk a lot about helicopters, but. Our, our physicians will determine if you need our hands, so our level of expertise will get you our hands, you know, what, whatever way we can. Sometimes we get there and things are not as advertised, whether it's weather or something about the patient that cannot be transported by rotary, um, then our staff just transport them by ground or by whatever means um, is available to them. So that's, yeah, it doesn't happen every day, but it's not, it's not unusual. So is there any type of uh, monetary, uh, do you get paid extra for that by the fixed wing company or the ground company to send staff or no, is that? No, no, yeah. no, no, no. Yep. It's just but what the patient needs Yep. and um, and we're just part of that system. Got you. Okay. No payment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, let's segue into uh, your sources of funding. I saw on the the website that you know your uh, the provincial governments provide upwards of 40 percent of your revenue um, and talk about your your other sources of of revenue I know fundraising is a big one too so it is it's it's the biggest so we um, we generate about 8% of revenue through that emergency link center that I was telling you about earlier. Mm-hmm. And then the rest is from the rest is philanthropy. So um, our lotteries are the single biggest source. Uh, we have two of them, one in Saskatchewan and one in Alberta. Mm-hmm. The Alberta lottery has been around the longest. It's one of the most successful lotteries in the country and actually funds an entire base for an entire year, every wow. year. So we, it, we, brings in between 10 and $11 million net in the Alberta lottery alone. And so now, is this with the, the house? Source. Is that the house? Or is that just part of it? It's a provincial lottery, which includes oh. homes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. They're expensive to run, very expensive to run. Um, but the the net um, or the ROI is really great for us. So that's biggest source and then major gifts and then corporate sponsorships and um and then all the other you know everything from believe it or not we still sell sell calendars and that brings us in just under a million dollars a year so it is if if you think of a fundraising idea we probably do it (laughs) yeah that's that's so incredible the the uh amount that you do uh collect with all that The, the I noticed also that there is some fee-for-service revenue. What is that? So it would be things like, um, so that site registration, um, working mm-hmm. loan monitoring, so we get paid yes. to provide that service. Okay. Yeah. So if an American is in Canada as transported, is that billed to the the individual? Is the service yes. billed? Uh-huh. Okay. So yeah. that... I could be included with that too. Um, uh, let's see, I, um, it's very small. What we bill is really small. Yeah. Uh, annually, yeah. So when you uh, took over, there was uh, quite a bit of um, 
news about uh, uh, pediatric patients in Manitoba. Uh, can you talk mm -hmm. about what that issue was and how it was resolved? And as, I know it's especially difficult because you had just started as the president and CEO. Yeah, no, you know, so this to me is, is one of those big leadership lessons. So Saskatchewan um, asked us to come. We went in and said, yeah, it'll take us, you know, a year to 18 months with careful planning, lots of outreach, lots of community engagement. They understood, you know, exactly who we were and what we were, and we had a very smooth launch there. In Manitoba, we were doing one of those fee-for-service things that province had asked us to come in and provide flood support, air support, because they were having bad flooding that year. And so that's what we were there for, was to provide um, air medical transport to people that were, you know, um, uh, stranded because of the flooding. Mm -hmm. And so the government's understanding of what they were buying, and, and so we were there for floods, and they asked us to stay permanently. And we said yes. But I think fundamentally, neither of us really understood what we were agreeing to. And so there's the leadership lesson, right, is, um, you know, we signed a contract that was very similar to the other provinces, but fundamentally, I don't think either of us understood the other party. So that was the basis of, of um, uh, the problem we had. So we had a, a bad patient outcome. And as a result of that, we had, you know, just really a breakdown in trust between the two parties, government and STARS. And... Um, and then there was a case that was actually not um, substantively anything sort of a routine critical care case. But because we had had breach in trust, the government at that time grounded our service. And so we had to decide as an organization whether we should, whether that was a risk to our brand in the other provinces, and we were quite concerned about that, huh. and whether we should pull our service out or not. And the position of the executive at the time was, you know what, we're actually saving lives here. And as long as we can do that and we think that we can make a difference to the population, we should stay and try and fight for this. And so the board supported that. And then, you know, the board needed some independent, um, objective information. So we had an emergency board meeting and they met with, you know, the uh, deputy minister of health and independent physicians and independent um, objective people. And this is where when having the clinical uh, positions on the board was so helpful yes, because they understood the complexity of critical care. And so um, all of that was done independently by the board without any of us. And the decision was made that, yeah, we should stay and try and fight for this. And so we worked with some really great people in government, honestly, and sought to understand both both sides of um, the equation and and we were able to win that uh, essentially and so we got to a place of mutual understanding and then the the um, service you know was stood back up and now um, Manitoba happens to be our busiest flying base at the moment and so we know that we're making a huge impact to Manitobans and we've just gained uh, the government, the health system, and the public's trust. Um, just, you know, one patient at a time. But it was it was a heck of a journey, no question. Yeah, I remember um, 
you going through that and the news coming out. What, so what was the core issue with pediatric patients, though? There was one pediatric patient that was uh, cared for that had a bad outcome. Uh-huh. That's it. Not, that, not sort of global. It was just there was one incident. I see. Okay. The, um, you know, I, I wanted to go back. You had talked about the board and the province. On, on, on your board of directors, do you have anybody from provincial government? No. On the board. And are you accountable to the province for funding? Do you have to provide reports? Do they do inspections? We do. We do uh, quarterly re- financial reporting to our government. Okay. And um, to the provincial health authorities, actually, and we're accountable to them for the level of service that we provide. Okay. So, um, and we have regular meetings with them and report to them on all, on all aspects. The um, For sure, we're very accountable to them. Yeah. I know um, Orange got into quite a bit of uh, issues with the provincial government uh, there, and they've actually taken over the program, right? Isn't it just totally run by the province? No, Orange is still independent and is contracted, but it's a 100% government contract to provide the service. I see. Okay. Yeah. Um, so how many bases do you have, Andrea, and um, where, um, when were they developed? Can you give a little so history? So 1985 uh, was the first base, Calgary, mm-hmm. followed by Edmonton and Grand Prairie. And so they've been in existence for uh, a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then two bases in Saskatchewan and one base in Manitoba, so six in total. Got you. And the last three came up nine years ago. Yep. And what type of aircraft do you use? And talk about the transition, because I know you've transitioned from different aircraft over the years. Mm-hmm. So we started our base aircraft with uh, Airbus BK-117. Uh, mm-hmm. We still have them. We have eight in total of those. They're 35 years old. And um, wow. so uh, when Greg was uh, running the organization, was thinking about fleet replacement at the time. When they went to the market, the best thing on the market was the uh, AW139. And so those were purchased. Two were purchased for Alberta without, um, you know, it wasn't in our, in our plan to be in other provinces at the time. So we had two of those. We ended up with three um, AWs and uh, the rest BKs when we did the expansion. Mm-hmm. And uh, now we're having trouble getting parts. And to our, you know, when we did the assessment on the fleet, felt that we needed to be out of the BKs by 2022, 2023, that sort of time frame. So the board um, supported us looking at, you know, full-on fleet replacement, so getting out of both aircraft and into new. And we chose, um, after a, you know, huge process, we chose the um, uh, Airbus um, H145. So really it was just, we we considered five different types of aircraft. Fundamentally it is um, our requirements, you know, hot and heavy in the summer, getting into the mountain ranges, we need a lot of power. Yes. And so um, that's really the crux of it. Uh, the H-145 sort of met our, our needs and, uh, you know, cost and all of those things uh, tied in. That's what we chose. So we're in possession right now 
of three of those aircraft that they have arrived and the the remaining fleet will all be here within the next 18 months so they're all ordered and so we are in middle of the big transition so once they're all in then we'll sell off the existing fleet so how many total aircraft then will you have when the fleet is totally replaced so you have nine 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 nine. okay so you have backup um do you do yeah. your major maintenance uh, in each of the provinces, or is that done primarily in Calgary? Actually, heavy maintenance is done in Edmonton, but Edmonton, okay. uh, we do have, of course, being 24-7, we have 24-7 maintenance sure. support at every base. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so, no, we will be uh, maintaining the aircraft ourselves. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, uh, of course, the... Um, H one forty five is you know really the BK one seventeen updated BK one seventeen and so that's, that's all it is. yeah <laughs> I think it's still on the official name of it uh, when you look at it but uh, that's right it's, um, but uh, that's um, uh, an aircraft that was you know probably the most popular aircraft for for many many years now things have changed a little bit in the in the U S where you have a lot more um, single engine aircraft um that are that are being used by some of the the companies so um we also have a lot of you know transport canada requirements right so it's not even a choice you can't fly into you couldn't fly a single engine into most of our hospitals mm -hmm. so that's a that's transport canada yeah requirement what other requirements are there oh well it, you know, really, it is about having um, the second engine if you uh-huh. have to abort in a major center that's highly populated, right? Yeah. So um, that's fundamentally what it comes down to. And then the rest are our requirements, um, you know, NVG and all of that good stuff. Right, right. <laughs> Got you. Um, is there a cooperative arrangement with the other air medical programs in Canada to, um, um, Yes. Uh, do yes. You, you guys work together on safety and other types of things? We sure do. So our chief medical officer, uh, Dr. Jan Armstrong, started uh, sort of the first collaboration across Canada. Yeah. And so now they meet uh, annually and always address sort of the major issues. It's all clinically focused on critical care and, and air transport. And so um, very cooperative. We're doing some research together. And so always sharing um, knowledge across the country. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. It, it did, is there a reason, uh, and is it just population that um, uh, the other provinces um, did not have an air medical service? So, so just as I was saying when I was explaining the provincial mandate, really you got a bucket of money. Yep. And you've got, you know, population to serve yep. and it's up to that province to figure out how to serve, how to how to provide yep. healthcare. Yeah. So they they look to to stars as uh, being an expert too. Um, um let's talk about COVID-19. Um, you know, and I know there's been a a big difference if you could talk from a macro sense on how Canada is handling things um i think we know how the u.s is doing i mean what what do you think has been 
um, uh, the things that have worked in Canada to keep the spread of COVID down, down, and then uh, specifically how has it affected stars and your transports? Yeah, so I think that uh, Canada has done okay. Um, we got in early. Our provincial officers of health have done uh, a stellar job, I think, of getting out early, mm-hmm. um, being in the public eye, really focused on do's and don'ts. Uh, but it was the early intervention that helped, for sure. And now, um, you know, as we say, this isn't even a marathon anymore. It's, you know, going to be, this is going to be with us for a significant period of time. And so, you know, the social distancing and careful reintegration, um, you know, we just have to follow the experts. And so even at STARS, when we're making decisions, we always check in with our provincial experts mm-hmm. and um, and make sure that, you know, we're in line. And, you know, if we have an exposure, we always go to um, the, the provincial um, medical officer of health, public health, and check in that we're doing all the things that we should be doing. So always go to the, the area of expertise. And, you know, our folks, of course, are very well, um, are, you know, very knowledgeable as well, of course. So, in, uh, so I'd say we've done okay in Canada. Um, we are concerned about kids going back to school. I think everyone's, there's high yes. level of anxiety about that. Um, and, you know, and everyone is waiting for that vaccine, right? But this is just going to be our lives for a while, no question. Have you transported um, that many patients, COVID patients? So we, we, we transport ILI, so influenza-like illness. Um, it Normally, 7 to 8% of all of our transports are ILI. And mm-hmm. now, um, I think Jan told me the last number was we we're sitting around fourteen point five, so it's it's almost doubled. Um, and sort of the complexity is really the PPE and decontaminating the aircraft. Yes. Um, yeah. And and that you know, unfortunately or fortunately, we're getting very good at, but uh, the the transport space is not. Um, changed substantively like this is busy season now trauma season you know everybody out and about season so initially our volumes really dropped off in march march april and now we're back into very normal summertime values and so we are flying tons um it's busy time of year and so our ili numbers will drop off because we're we're transporting primarily trauma at the moment Yes, And so, um, which is normal summertime stuff. So for stars, what's different is, you know, people like me don't go to work uh, unless absolutely necessary. And so we're trying to limit exposure to our operational staff and, um, and, and you know, keep them as safe as we can so that they can provide care. Yeah. So you're doing um, a lot of your... Steph, you're doing more uh, remote where you can work from home. What, what types of tools are you using to stay in touch? Oh, Zoom and <laughs> Teams. Yeah. Zoom and Teams. And yeah. so we have, we have an all-stars meeting every Tuesday morning, and so we've had as many as 150 people on the call at once, um, all, all Zooming in. So we found that kind of uh, connection really helpful. But there's no question we need to see our people. So, um, you know, I have traveled around the bases and will continue to do so. 
um, in a safe and careful manner. Um, we have our, our employees are starting to travel for training. So we do have four pilots in Germany right now, uh, getting trained on the new aircraft. Mm -hmm. And so we, and that is the first time we've traveled since COVID began. So we're taking small steps of our own reintegration into the workplace. Um, but we're being very careful and monitoring it really closely. How, how have, um, and I'm just curious because I, I, I do think there's going to be some major changes from COVID and how we, uh, you know, do business. What, what do you think have been some of the positive, negative things with, you know, using Zoom to, to connect with people? Is, um, what's worked well? What, what, what is missing? So for me, this is a spectrum, uh, like all things. Yep. Um, and you know, I think that we all should be concerned about mental health. The, yes. Um, um, there's a lot of anxiety that's related to what's happened in society, and um, and I think we need to be really in tune to that. And I think you can only pick up on so much when you're talking to people virtually. You need to see them. So we need to really rely on our teams to be very closely connected and identify if there are issues. We also, you know, some people are far more social than others. And so this isolation has been really hard. Yes. And so we need our response can't be one thing. It needs to be multifaceted and a multi-pronged approach because whatever we try is not going to work for somebody. And, um, and so that's, I think that's the challenge and the difficulty to this is trying to be many things to many people. And so that's, you know, I think Zoom and Teams and um, technology uh, has made us more efficient for sure. And there will be some long-lasting effects of, you know, some people may choose to work from home and our costs may go down. Uh -huh. um, others will really need to be at work. You know, fundraising, for example, is a very face-to-face uh, interactive process. And so we're going to have to have a combination. So I think long-term, there could be some great efficiencies that come from this and great learnings. Like I said to the team, never again am I going to get on that crazy, um, you know, Monday morning drive trying to get to work by 8 a.m. for a meeting when there's a blizzard. I'm going to stay at home and use Zoom, yeah. you know? So, yeah. um, but, but I think that... Um, you know, the economic impact has been terrible. And I, I'm i not sure what any of us are going to look like at the other end, end of this. You know, there's so many companies that have gone uh, into receivership. And it's going to be very hard for the charities, uh, us included. We have a three-year plan where we really do believe we will be bleeding cash for three years because uh, of the economic impact of this. And yeah. so I think... Um, you know, anyone who says they know exactly what's going to happen, I'd say they're wrong. No one's got, you know, that um, magical knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You think, uh, so you, th you feel that donations will probably um, drop below what you expected? Well, just think of events. You can't yeah. have an event. Yeah. And so, you know, where you're, yeah. you, you know, we have an annual event that has, you know, 1,500 people in a room. Not going to happen. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's uh, the economic uh, impact has been, you know, 
uh, profound um, here too. And it's, uh, I, I think from what I know from Canada, and I, I hear you when you say you feel it's been an okay response, but at least there seems to be coordination or believing science that you know, we don't have this making it into a political argument uh, about the things that need to be done. And it seems like mm-hmm. that is much more coordinated in Canada. Is there, is there anything else, uh, Andrea, that you'd like to talk about with STARS that uh, I haven't asked you? Anything else that you want to highlight? Mm, just, you know, um, this is, uh, as you know, a function of really dedicated and, and incredibly professional people that have come together to provide that this service. You know, it's not me. It's the team. And... Yep. Um, they, you know, they're, when all the first responder um, recognition that has come as a res- you know, result of COVID, I think is, is phenomenal. But, you know, we cannot say thanks enough to, to our folks every day getting in an aircraft and looking after really sick people. Yeah. It, you know, it's an unusual group of, of folks that, that do this work. And, you know, I think we all need to be really grateful. That's uh, very well said, and that's something I've always felt uh, very strongly. The, uh, the programs that I've worked with have always tried to um, uh, fly along, you know, on, on clinical missions because I can really uh, see what people are doing and what they're, you know, how they're working. So it's, uh, um, I agree complete with, completely with you. So almost done here, I just on a personal note what uh, what types of things do you like to do for fun and recreation well if my knees hold up I'll continue to run <laughs> and uh, do yoga yesterday we had a phenomenal day up here we went uh, we had a golf game we went for a canoe we went for a walk um, and what else oh and then we went swimming so that was a pretty awesome day yeah in in 24 hours so you know, anything that involves physical activity is uh, right up my alley. That's great. I didn't realize you were a, a runner, and uh, I, I do appreciate you taking the time. I know you're on uh, you're on vacation with family, right? You said at, yeah, at Jasper yeah. National Park. So thanks for taking time, and I apologize to your family for uh, taking taking you away from some activities. And hopefully, you can get moving on that. Yeah, so, not at all. Yeah, Andrew, thanks again for taking the time to be on the Air Medical Today podcast. I wish you the very best for the continued success of STARS. Thanks. We'll hopefully see each other soon. Yes. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com or on iTunes. Air Medical Today is also on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and you can find the links on the website. Remember, if you would like to sponsor or provide feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 612-367-6052. Special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tombs for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song for the podcast. You can follow Stan on Facebook at facebook.com slash stanley.reeves.39. Take care and fly safe.